Let us pray. Merciful God, open your word to us in such a way that it will open our hearts and expand our understanding of what is possible through your grace. Awaken us to your spirit that is stirring within us and around us even now. Amen. Today's scripture reading is from the letter to the Ephesians, chapter 3, verses 7 through 21. I have become a servant of the gospel according to the gift of God's grace that was given to me by the working of his power. Although I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to me to bring to the Gentiles the news of the boundless riches of Christ and to make everyone see what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church of wisdom of God in its rich variety might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose that he has carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have access to God in boldness and confidence through faith in him. I pray, therefore, that you may not lose a heart over my sufferings for you. They are your glory. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth takes its name. I pray that, according to the riches of his glory, he may grant that you may be strengthened in your inner being with power through his spirit, and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith as you are being rooted and grounded in love. I pray that you may have the power to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses the knowledge so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who by the power at work within us is able to accomplish abundantly far more than all we can ask or imagine, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. This is a word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. I feel strongly that you should love the place you live that wherever you find yourself, you invest in the community. You enjoy all that it has to offer, even as you commit to improving it. So it was in that spirit that I learned about a man named Pearl Fryer in Bishopville, South Carolina. 
Have you heard about him? His garden covers three acres, and it is filled with living sculptures, roughly 400 topiaries he has trimmed to absolute perfection. Now, this began in 1984, when Mr. Fryer learned there was a Yard of the Month competition. (laughs) He decided he was going to win it. But then he was told the competition was only for residents who lived within the city limits. His home was just outside. So reflecting on all of this, he says, well, I decided I had to do something so exceptional, they couldn't help but change the rules. (laughs) He went to a nursery where a small sculpted plant caught his eye. And after a few words of instruction from the owner, he took a juniper bush home, he cared for it, he sculpted it, and he never looked back. He would come home after a 12-hour shift in a canning factory and work deep into the night. He shrugged aside traditional topiary forms, boxes or mazes or animals, and leaned more towards abstract, organic forms that made you stop and look twice. In 1985, he won Yard of the Month. In the 1990s, he was commissioned by the State Museum here in Columbia. He was featured in a number of art magazines and garden publications. The road to his property was expanded to accommodate tour buses, which still come loaded from, with tourists from across the, across the globe. In 2006, he won a Medal of Honor for significant contribution to the arts. In that same year, a documentary about him won awards of its own. In 2014, he celebrated his 75th birthday by being featured on National Geographic. In 2015, his garden was named one of the top 50 gardens in the country. He is entirely self-taught, and he works with your standard run-of-the-mill hedge trimmer. He says, people call me an artist. I'm just a guy who cuts bushes. (laughs) But he is proud of creating something people haven't seen before. He says, I want people to find more here than they expect. He says, I want people to find more than they realized was possible. Now, there's one more detail about Mr. Fryer's garden that's important. That first juniper bush that started it all, he pulled it out of the compost pile at the nursery. Vast portions of his award-winning work are all shaped from plants that were considered throwaways or leftovers, the shrubs that no one else wanted or weren't even deemed worthy enough to be sold. Life is about love, he says. If you have love, you will discover that something more is always possible. Now, that was the case for Garrett Hill. Garrett Hill imagined there had to be a better system for kidney transplants. He learned about the limitations of the matching system when his 10-year-old daughter suddenly and acutely needed a transplant. A few months after she received one, he formed the National Kidney Registry. 
He created algorithms that connect patients and donors together all across the continent, which is how in 2012, a 60-person chain of transplants over four months across 17 hospitals and 11 states resulted in 30 people receiving a new lease on life. It started with a man named Rick. He was a devout Buddhist, and he decided to donate a kidney. He walked into a hospital, said he had a kidney available, and did they happen to know anyone who needed one? Down that chain, despite an intensely bitter breakup, a Michigan man donated a kidney on behalf of his former girlfriend for the sake of their two-year-old daughter. A woman from Toronto donated on behalf of her fifth cousin in Brooklyn after meeting him in Italy. Children donated on behalf of their parents, husbands on behalf of their wives, sisters on behalf of their brothers. A 26-year-old student from Texas gave a kidney on behalf of his 44-year-old uncle he barely knew. But all of those organs went to complete strangers because those who had a kidney to give and those loved ones who had someone willing to give, they weren't matches. So those donors were left to give to others, trusting in the ultimate pay-it-forward experiment. One leap of faith followed another. The most worrisome risk, always, was that one donor would change their mind. It would send everything into chaos. But it didn't happen, not once. Over 400,000 Americans need a new kidney. Fewer than 17,000 receive one every year. 5,000 die waiting. One third of transplanted kidneys come from living donors. The reason that number isn't higher is that a third of those patients who have a willing donor they're incompatible with that person. Meaning despite the generous offer, that transplant is impossible because the kidney would be rejected. And so domino chain transplants were begun. But it was slow going and the chains were small until Garrett Hill got involved. With no medical training, he was considered an interloper by professionals in the field. But his mathematical background and his entrepreneurial energy, when partnered with the medical community, made history and continues to make history. That transplant chain held the world record for years. But just last December, possibly overlooked because of a global pandemic, he broke his own record. This time, a chain of 70 people resulted in 35 transplants, and it took half as much time as the original chain. The paired exchange process, he says, makes life possible for more and more people. Asked in an interview if in the early days of his work he ever imagined these kinds of results, he says, in the early days, all I knew was that I loved my daughter and that there were hundreds of thousands of others out there loving their daughters and sons and parents and partners. 
Now, of course, that algorithm, it only works when someone in need of a transplant knows someone who loves them enough to make a sacrifice for a stranger. And then when all those strangers agree to trust one another. Today's scripture reading comes right in the middle of this letter to the church at Ephesus. The first two and a half chapters describe all that God has done in and for that community. In the last three chapters, instruct that community how they are to live in response. The section that Shay read for us is where that book hinges all together. And most of it is a prayer. It's the author praying for those who would eventually read his words. I pray that God may strengthen your inner being with power through his spirit, that Christ may dwell in your hearts as you are being rooted and grounded in love. I pray that you would be able to comprehend the breadth and length and height and depth of Christ's love, love that surpasses all knowledge. Or in other words, I pray that you would awaken to the truth that Christ lives within you, that the love of Christ is the reason that you are alive and it is your purpose for living. And I pray that you would somehow, by grace, come to recognize that Christ's love is so much more than our human minds can actually fathom. And then the author writes this, Now to him who by the power at work within us is able to accomplish abundantly far more than all we can ask or imagine, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations. Those words are doxology. They are pure praise. And then tucked into those words is this little phrase, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. To him be the glory in the church. The author of these words is absolutely convinced that the glory of God is made known not just in the person of Jesus Christ, but also in the body of Christ, known as the church. One scholar, in thinking about this, puts it this way. He says that this makes clear that God is already at work in that congregation and in ours. God's massive holy power is present even in our fumbling attempts to live faithfully, lovingly, and courageously in the face of any trouble. Our daring prayers to be strengthened in faith, to comprehend God's grace, are not asking too much, he says. Do not ever make the mistake of thinking our bold prayers can ask too much. Because the love of Christ can accomplish abundantly far more than all we can ask or imagine. We see glimpses of that here at Shandon all the time. In the past few weeks alone, I have seen it in Bonnie Smith, 
who asked us to pray for a six-year-old friend of hers named Mira, who has cancer, and in the ministry of the quilting group, who made a warm blanket for a little girl they will never meet. Nevertheless, every stitch was shaped by love. I have seen that love in the children of our weekday school who have made stacks and stacks and stacks of get well cards for Gerald, our facilities manager, who was in the hospital with an infection. Get well, the cards say. We miss you. We love you. Feel better soon. And I have seen that love in Randy Covington, who labors over our international giving dollars, wanting to stretch them as far as they can possibly go, and then a little bit further still. And I have seen it in Jay Rogers and David Roberts and Garrett Humphreys, who have examined every square inch of our education building at least 17 times, all in an effort to make it everything we need for future generations. I've seen that love in Anne Hudson Maynard, who has not yet run out of hugs, despite how freely she gives them away. <laughs> I have seen it in the 16 people who represented our church in the Pride Parade, reminding our city and everyone in it that God's love is absolutely big enough for everyone. I've seen that love in Byron Duell and Edie and Jim McNeish and Luke Spangler, who take turns laboring behind the scenes, back behind that door, making microphones and video cameras and online streaming services do whatever it is they do. <laughs> and I've seen that love in our reopening task force, who agreed to a four-month commitment over a year and a half ago and not one of whom has quit on me yet. That love is also visible in each and every one of you who show up week in and week out with masks on your faces, not because you love wearing them, I know you don't, but you do love one another and you want to keep one another healthy and safe. Now again, this is just in the past couple of weeks. I could keep going like Hugh threatened. I could keep going, but then we'd have to stay for lunch and dinner and you're going to get hungry. So let me get practical for just a moment. Today is Dedication Sunday. Many of us will turn in pledge cards and estimate our financial commitment to the church over the coming year. We are hoping that our congregation will pledge $982,282 for 2022. That amount will not just keep our ministry going, it will allow us to expand and enhance what we are doing. Now, last week, I told you I was hoping for a 7.5% increase over last year. I was corrected by some of your other leaders who told me I was thinking too small. So we're going for 10% now. That is the amount that we are imagining and dreaming purpose for. And we're already more than a third of the way there. So to those of you who have turned in your pledge cards already, thank you. And to those of you who are about to, thank you. 
And to those of you who can't necessarily commit financially, but commit in so many other ways, thank you. Because you are the church. And to borrow some words from Ephesians, you, Shandon, you are one of the ways the glory of God is made known in the world. Now, one quick word about a word, pledge. We come from different backgrounds, so the idea of pledge is sewn into the DNA of some of you, but not all. A pledge card is this simple. It's where you write down what you estimate you could give to the church in the coming year. It's not a contract. It can change. You can pledge to give $10 once. You can pledge to give $10 every week. You can pledge to give $1,000 every day if you wish. There is no right or wrong way to pledge, and there is no right or wrong amount to pledge. So if it makes you nervous, estimate low and give what you can as you can. If it holds you accountable in a way you find helpful, estimate carefully and live into it. If you have the resources and you believe that God is at work here, estimate high and help us dream even bigger. We ask you to make this estimate about what you can contribute, in part because it helps us plan a budget. But we also, help, we also ask you to estimate what you can contribute because it helps all of us evaluate what matters most to us what we're willing to invest in with resources of time and energy and ability and finance and imagination. And here's why I'm asking so plainly. I believe that Ephesians is right. I believe that the church is the way that God's glory is known in the world today. There are some churches who say that glory looks like love. There are a lot of churches that would say that glory looks like something else entirely. This neighborhood, this city, this state, this world, everybody needs to see God's glory the way I see it in you. Pearl Fryer saw a juniper bush tossed in a compost pile. Garrett Hill saw 400,000 people in need of an essential organ. So they let their imaginations run wild. And the world is a better and more beautiful place because of it. The end of Ephesians 3 is a prayer. It says, Now to him who by the power at work within us. Make no mistake, that power mentioned is love. Shandon, when it comes to love, you are so powerful. Do you realize that? Do you have any idea how much power you wield? If that powerful love were to be unleashed, it would change even more lives. And it would change your life in even more ways.
I believe we'll see it happen because I know you. Now to him who by the power at work within us is able to accomplish abundantly far more than all we can ask or imagine, to him be the glory in the church and in Jesus Christ for all generations, forever and ever. Pray with me. Gracious God, we believe. Help our unbelief. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.